0: Hey you. Good morning. It's good to be back. I feel like I've been gone for a long time. I've been gone the last two weeks, um, but it is good to be home. I'm good to see you. Give a good report from uh, South Carolina. Uh, that's where I was last weekend, and the church down there is doing fantastic. Um, they're up to two services now, and uh, yeah, filling both. It's, um, it's just two services. So. Uh, So uh, Scott and Stephanie send their love, and uh, it's just exciting to see what God's doing down there. It was a bit warmer, (laughs) but only a bit. (laughs) Actually, it was down in the 20s uh, one night. So, all right, well, let's pray. One thing is uh, there's a lot of people sick. You know anybody that's got a cold and flu? And uh, both my kids are sick. They've been sick all week. So let's just agree together. And pray for healing. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you that you are our healer, that you took upon the cross both our iniquity and our infirmity. And so we declare in Jesus' name that we are healed. Lord, our loved ones are healed. Father, that every sickness that comes against us, that you have the power to restore complete health. And so we release health on every, every person that's, that's joined to this body and all of our loved ones, Father. We just we proclaim and believe that you set us free from sickness, from the bonds of death, Lord. And uh, just, just impart, just let the virtue of the body of Christ flow into everybody, every person's body that's, uh, that's struggling with, uh, whether it be a virus, whether it be the flu whether it be whatever. Lord, we believe in your healing. and We ask for that in Jesus' name right now. Amen. Everybody agree? Yeah. Amen. Say amen out loud. All right. Well, we're continuing on uh, our study of um, the Sermon on the Mount and uh, just whipping right through this, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, uh, 24, and we're going to pick up where I left off, <clears throat> and again, the purpose of this is really to go through a verse-by-verse study, and so I have no uh, uh, desire to kind of rush, actually, I just, I'm delighting in the opportunity to take time and dig in and kind of to kind of pull out some of the nuggets of truth, where normally in our series is that we're limited to four weeks or so, we have to kind of rush through this stuff so uh, uh, uh we're going to take the summer actually and go through the sermon on the mount and just so you know how slow we're going th- this is actually going to be the last of the introduction this is week four <laughs> <laughs> and this is still the introduction so we're gonna uh, 424 through 5 2 we'll read it and then we'll talk about it. it says then his fame went throughout all syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted and with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptic, and paralytic, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them." uh, saying, and, and, and then it begins the Sermon on the Mount. We're not actually going to actually get to that. I just want to look at a little bit more. We touched on uh, uh, verse 24 of, and 25 of Matthew, and we're going to look a little bit on uh, verse 1 and 2 of uh, chapter 5. <clears throat> it says, his fame went throughout all of Syria. Uh, it says, and it mentions specific areas. It says, all of Syria, Galilee, from Decapolis, and Decapolis just means 10 cities, uh, the word DC, DEC, like Decalogue, or uh, decimal or uh, uh, Decathlon, there you go, thank you. <laughs> uh, it just means 10. <clears throat> so it was a, a group of 10 cities, and because they were close together, they kind of just, that's what they were called, kind of lumped together. Jerusalem, of course, a city uh, from uh, ages and ages, I'd uh, been around Judea, which was a, a geographical region, <clears throat> and beyond the Jordan. And remember that when the Israelites came back from uh, Egypt, some of them stayed on the other side of the Jordan, right? Several of the tribes, if you've read through your Bible, uh, that's, that's a big issue. Uh, in and Exodus and in, in the Numbers, when they when they enter in and Joshua, when they enter into uh, the the Promised Land, several of the tribes stayed beyond the Jordan, and so here it mentions that area beyond the Jordan. Now this is very very significant uh, for the readers of the New Testament. It may not seem significant to you because you grew up in America, if most of you, <laughs> or you live in the twenty first century, and all of these are just names of cities and places you have no idea what they're talking about but the jews and remember matthew particularly of, of the four gospels <clears throat> matthew mark and luke are really written to a jewish audience john is more written to a, a gentile audience but especially of matthew it's purpose is to is to bridge the gap between the old testament and the new testament and so it, it addresses the issues that would be more significant in the hearts and minds of of people either Jewish descent or people raised in that culture, <clears throat> and um, to to Jewish people uh, in that day and everyone who lived in Palestine, even non-Jews, man, this this list of cities meant a, a lot. It was extremely important because it's the entire region. It refers to the entire geographical region that was promised to Abraham. It refers to, the, to the, the whole area, the ancient holy land, all right? The area ruled by David and lost the foreigners because of the sin of the nation and human failure over the generations. And now we see, and, and Matthew proclaims right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that people from all of those regions are now coming to Jesus. And so we see Jesus Christ gathering together and having influence over the entire of the promised land. And think how that, how, that, how that would connect to the Jewish people who had seen their land decimated by uh, foreign governments coming and conquering it and taking the inhabitants off into slavery. And, 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 and they remember the stories of the glory days uh, during Solomon and King David, and they remember the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham and and Jacob and uh, and Isaac and and how all of that happened. You know, they they were told from little children of how they were delivered from Egypt and wandered in the deserts and then finally came uh, to the promised land. But then all of that had been lost, and now they'd been setting in the place, they'd living in the place of being uh, under the dominion of the Roman Empire, and any hope of the restoration. Of, of the promised land would, would be just almost fantasy, of, of, you, know, uh, uh, you know, some idea that maybe someday. But here Jesus' ministry comes and he gathers them all together, but he gathers them not politically. You know, he didn't start a new political party, did he? <laughs> he didn't gather them militarily, and that's what they were expecting. Uh, the the Jewish leaders were kind of expecting a military leader to be raised up like David, right? Because it says, you know, like David. And so they were expecting someone like David that somehow God was going to miraculously restore this land. But instead, Jesus establishes a kingdom not of this earth, a heavenly realm, a heavenly reign, like the kingdom of God which he preached. That's what Jesus came. So Jesus is presented uh, in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount as the Restorer. Christ is the one who gathers together everything that was lost and he offers all of these people coming from Syria and J- Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem from beyond the Jordan. He's talking to them about relationship with God, but he's also promising them a restoration of what was lost. And it moved the nation, okay? It moved, it, it, it really had an incredible effect upon individuals, but also upon the, the, the nation of Israel. What was lost through countless generations, Jesus gathered together, and he's coming to reign as the promised king. All right, uh, what, was, what was left at the end of, uh, of the Old Testament, and the, even uh, after the return from Babylon, they resettled the promised land, but there was no king. There was no king in the line of David, and here comes Jesus coming as king. Uh, and and offering restoration. Now, now, that's a nice historical lesson of how Jesus offered restoration and hope to those people. But how can we apply this to our lives? And again, remember, a big part of this series is teaching you not only how to see things out of Scripture, but also how to get application for your own life. Well, think about it for a minute. If Jesus can offer that to a whole nation, all right? And restore promises that had been lost through generations of sin. If He can offer that to them, He can offer it to you. Right? When you see Jesus coming and fulfilling a uh, promise, representing hope for restoration, Jesus offers us hope for restoration. Jesus is the restorer of what we lost. Or you could say, Jesus is the restorer of what I lost through sin or failure or weakness. Whatever we've lost, whatever bondage uh, we're in because of failure or or because of the failure of sin in generations before us, right? Because these these people that were born in Jesus' day, it wasn't like they were the fault that the Romans were occupying. It wasn't their fault that, uh, you know, almost 500 years earlier, the uh, the whole nation was cap- became captive in Babylon, right? Can you imagine? It was 500 years ago. Heck, the United States has only been a country for how many years? Huh? Yeah, just over two, We don't even know. Heck, <laughs> a couple hundred. We're talking about things that happened like twice as long ago as the United States was founded, all right? And these people are living under bondage, hoping for this promise. And Jesus comes. He's able to restore that. And so here we are in our day. What? How does this affect you? Say, how does this affect me? See, that's how you need to read Scripture, all of Scripture. You need to understand it in its historical context. And you need to say, okay, Based on that, how can I apply it to my context? All right, because it's not written the book. The Bible is not a history book of what God did; it's a textbook about what God does. Yeah. All right, and so, okay, what has been lost? What is rightfully mine, based on the promises of God, that either through my sin or failure or weaknesses I have lost, or my or the generations before me have lost through Jesus, all of those promises can be restored and fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the message of these verses. That's what it means when, when, when the Bible says that all of these things are being restored. Whatever we've lost, whatever bondage, whatever failure, what, our own fault or generations before us, Jesus offers the hope of restoration. He offers a new way of life. All right. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them. Now this is, again, another significant verse, easily something that could be read over uh, as just a prelude to the sermon. But in here there's some nuggets of truth, and it's setting up what is following in a particular way. Let me just read from urban's bible commentary um on this verse i think it is is helps us understand the significance of these words uh it says in the commentary it is natural to see jesus as the new moses delivering the new torah or law with a new authority remember moses where did he go to get the law up, he went up to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and then he came down with the Word of God, which were the priests of the Ten Commandments by which uh, the nation of Israel lived, and, and he didn't just get the Ten Commandments, he got the whole vision of the tabernacle and, and all of the laws, they kind of downloaded, he had an encounter, he actually went up the mountain twice. Um, <clears throat> but. Um, uh, and, and so we see at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus going up on a mountain. And it's like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, so you see, Jesus, Jesus is presented as the new Moses delivering the new Torah or law uh, with a new authority. But it is not a new legalism, despite the emphasis on the importance of law and the danger of antinomianism. I'm going to talk a little bit, I'm going to explain antinomianism. Antinomian, okay, let's all say that together. <laughs> antinomianism. Can you do it? Antinomianism. All right, you go, what is antinomianism? Listen, antinomianism is really a problem in our day. It is one of the most significant influences in the Christian church right now, in the young especially this, the younger generation, there's some uh, people that are preaching um, this heresy as though it was a brand new revelation. Read a history book, I'm serious. Like the church dealt with this way back in the first and second century, but there's this this new people that are preaching that. And what antinomianism is, is the heresy... Uh, uh, that moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary to salvation. And so it's taking the idea that, you know, it's by faith we are saved, okay? If faith uh, equals salvation, then the moral law or living um, a, a life that's free from sin really doesn't matter, you know? So it doesn't really matter if you, you know, use drugs or, or, or uh, you know, sleep around. It really doesn't matter because you're saved by faith. And if, if you're saved by, right, by behaving, by keeping all those rules, then it actually diminishes uh, the value of faith. And it's like, no, you know, sh- you know, should sin abound because of faith? God forbid. I mean, Paul deals with this directly but it continues to be all all through church history it's always been one of the tensions within the christian church of people saying well i'm saved by faith so i guess i, can, I guess that sin doesn't really matter you know uh, if i sin i'll just i'll just ask for forgiveness and it'll be okay you know and that leads to uh, a, a lifestyle that's uh, you know whoever sins is a slave to sin and it leads to bondage and so um, jesus deals with this in his first address Right? He deals with uh, the idea that living in Christ, living, living a relationship in the kingdom, is not embracing this idea that moral law is no longer necessary. Let's read on. Um, the real criticism is directed not against Jesus' criticism, is not against Old Testament law, but against the rabbitic interpretation of it. Matthew shows... Matthew shows, in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see, Jesus radicalizes the demand of God. He actually makes it more strict. Everything is exponentially increased, not in any way decreased, revealing it to be something that deals with the inward man and which can be worked out only through the power of love. It is moral teaching, and teaching is didache, which is lessons and and understanding, but it is set within the framework of preaching, which is a different word, kerygma, uh, which means a declaration that empowers people to live a particular way. And so it's teaching presented as though this is the way, this is, I talked about this a few weeks ago, that the that, that, that preaching is something that is uh, expected to be uh, um, uh, believed and obeyed where teaching is kind of drawing out an understanding. So it's teaching delivered with this expectation that you're going to accept this, and it's true, and you need to obey it. Does that make sense? The whole of the sermon is delivered that way. Um, It can be attempted, uh, it, in other words, this lifestyle that Jesus presents, can be attempted only by the man or the person who has responded to the challenge of the kingdom presented by Jesus and who seeks to obey on the basis of grace. The perfection demanded does not mean that there is a double standard, but that the new life of sonship in Christ is the only basis on which the principles set out are in any way attainable, all right? That's the big, that's the important aspect that we all need to really understand here. That <clears throat> this new life that Jesus is about to talk about, what we're going to explore over the next few uh, months, this as he describes in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, is a life of sonship in Christ. And it, only through that relationship uh, is the only basis on which the principles uh, that he talks about are in any way attainable. Matthew uh, portrays uh, Jesus as the new Moses. And, and actually Moses prophesied that there would be a prophet like unto him that would, that would be risen up. And, and so Matthew is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of that long-awaited uh, prophecy. But Jesus is different in that he's not just giving another, uh, another list of, of outward regulations, another law. And, and that comparison with Moses shouldn't be stretched any further than that. It is yet another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. All right. Uh, <clears throat> in Jesus, we see not an end or a removal of the old. Okay. What was spoken and what we see throughout the Old Testament is not erased. All right. It's not removed. It's fulfilled. It's very important that we understand the difference in those words, in those terms. Christ brings what was promised to Abraham, what was declared by Moses, to its fulfillment. He fills it up. Okay? That's what fulfillment means. What was lacking in that, he fills. He fills it up. He doesn't erase it. He doesn't dismantle it. He actually fulfills it and actually adds to it. And so understand, it, if, you, if you embrace that and you, and you start to look at the Old Covenant and the, and the law and the writings of the Old Testament, with that in mind, it really adds a tremendous amount uh, to your understanding, uh, both of the Old Testament and then how all those things apply to the life of a Christian, how those apply to you, uh, and that Christ doesn't erase those. He actually fulfills them. He brings them to a new level. Verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, he, he was seated with his disciples, disciples came to them, and he opened up his mouth and taught. Okay, the setting for the Sermon on the Mount is that he's, he's, he goes up on the mountain, his disciples, and at this point, it, it wasn't probably just the twelve. Uh, throughout the Gospels, the term disciples actually most often refers to to those people who had accepted Jesus as a legitimate rabbi and were following his teachings. Uh, It does include the 12. Sometimes it refers just to the 12. And then at a certain point later in the book, he actually calls the 12 the apostles. Um, And then there's a bigger group of disciples from which he sends the 70. And that group, uh, we don't really know how big it was, uh, but throughout his ministry, it could have been, and it was likely hundreds at least uh, three to 500 or more. And these were people that just would, whenever Jesus had a meeting, they were there, okay? They did kids' ministry. And they were the ushers. <laughs> and the apostles, you know, they were the, 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 the leaders. But So we have Jesus setting down, and Matthew's uh, the, the, giving us a setting. We have his disciples there, but we also have the multitudes there, too. Uh, he really is... Um, Uh, speaking to both groups the Sermon on the Mount is in effect King Jesus's inaugural address right Uh, he's explaining what he expects of members of his kingdom this is his official address saying this is what is expected of the kingdom and you have to understand the, the purpose of it, in order to understand the sermon and how it applies to our lives and our world, we have to understand its intention and uh, its, um, its purpose. And so even though the multitude was present, the multitude always refers to a mixed crowd. I mean, there was critics, there was Pharisees, there were just people there because they kept hearing Jesus gave out free food. You know... <clears throat> They were looking for a girlfriend or a boyfriend. There was a bunch of young people there. So whatever, you know, uh, they were sick. They were hoping to get healed. Um, and so that's, that's the multitude. Jesus is publicly making known the culture of his kingdom. There's another important aspect we need, we need to understand of the sermon. The sermon makes no claim to present an ethic for all men. Most people think that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's the new ethic. This is what everyone should live like. And it's like, well, let me explain. (laughs) It makes no claim to present an ethic for all men. Indeed, much of it would make no sense as a universal code. It is concerned not with ethics in general, but with discipleship. With man in his obedience and devotion to God, not with a pattern for society. And again, that was a quote from uh, the author of a commentary, his name is France. A commentary on, this, on, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. It says, um, it's concerned not with ethics in general, but with discipleship. All right, Everybody say discipleship. discipleship. All right? So the primary concern of the Sermon on the Mount is discipleship. Because Jesus is talking about his kingdom, and he's communicating the culture of his kingdom to those who are, who are either already responding to his call to follow me, or those who may. And he says, this is what it means to follow me. <clears throat> Does this make sense? All right. The Old Testament was a pattern for society. Uh, the nation of Israel was required to live by all those laws. In fact, the Ten Commandments and, and much of the Old Testament still functions, either directly or indirectly, as a, a pattern for society. Almost all civil law draws, uh, goes back to uh, its roots with the Ten Commandments. All right? Even non-Christian societies look to that as a basis for civil law. And that's good, but this is different. The Sermon on the Mount takes it to a whole different level. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going deeper. He's going more radical. He's requiring of his disciples a higher standard than civil law. And this is why it's it's good to fight for godly civil law. But we must always remember that discipleship means living by a standard that's higher, uh, exponentially higher than any civil law. So whether it's legal or not really doesn't matter to a disciple. Does that make sense? We want want to fight to make sure that our laws are in line with the ethics of our kingdom. But we have to understand that just because it's legal legal or I can get away with it doesn't mean I do it. Because what I live by is the the call of discipleship and the relationship uh, with Jesus Christ uh, and the father as a son or a daughter in his kingdom. That's what we're concerned about. All right. So uh, uh, that's what the, the 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 Sermon on the Mount was concerned about. That's the point. All right. And that it doesn't mean that it's not meant to influence society. But the influence that it will have is not just these these words written in a book. But when that when that is embraced by you, by sons and daughters living it out. When you live that higher standard, your life will influence the society around you, all right? And draw the the society up, and hopefully even the civil law up to a place where it it reflects these higher standards, all right? And and sometimes we get it backwards, and we we try to fight with the wrong tools. Uh, Jesus is talking about discipleship. Another quote from the book. So to interpret it legalistically as a set of rules is to miss the point. It represents a demand more radical than any legislator could conceive, going far beyond what human nature can meet. A demand for, protection, for perfection, and let me just quote a part of it. We'll get to it later, but uh, verse 48 of chapter 5, and this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. you think the state of Michigan can pass a law like that? We require all citizens to be perfect, even as God is perfect. And if they're not, the sentence will be death. Imprisonment. Or whatever. That was another fine. Way to make money. <laughs> all right, that's ridiculous, right? This is why... Uh, we have to understand the Sermon on the Mount that it goes beyond a call for civil law. It calls for perfection. Well, how can you be perfect? Huh, there. Now, now that's actually the question we should be asking. All right? This is what Jesus is trying to get us to ask. Uh, <clears throat> when you read the sermon, when you embrace... Oh, let's see, I let me, let me, let me skipped the part. says, so the sermon is thus far... Is, is thus far from being a collection of moral precepts, it presents the radical demand of Jesus the Messiah to all who respond to his preaching of the, God's kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount compels us, in the first place, to ask, Who is he who utters these words? All right, or in other words, who does Jesus think he is? After you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you understand, if you were sitting in the audience, and let me tell you, I know how you think, because I think it's the same way. You think if you saw Jesus, and Jesus is there, you'd be in love with Jesus. And you go, oh, Jesus, oh, I'm here. I'm hearing the Sermon on the Mount. This is amazing. No, if you were actually living in one of those days, you'd be sitting and listening to him and going, this guy is whacked. You go, this is impossible. Who does he think I am? Who does he think he is? That's how you'd respond. That's what, how most people responded. And if you read the words, you actually, instead of thinking it as some religious thing, uh, you have to, you, have to you, you, you should be driven to the point where you struggle with this. How can Jesus say that? I have to be perfect. He doesn't say You know, someday you will be. Does he? You shall be perfect. Just as your father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard we're going for, guys. You want to be part of my kingdom? All right. It requires perfection. Equal to God himself. Ah, This goes way beyond... So the, the question that should rise up is, who does Jesus think he is? But that's it. That's it. Can you grasp it? That is actually one of the big points that Matthew's trying to make, that God's trying to make, that you would actually be asking yourself, if you were sitting there listening to Jesus, you would say, who is this guy? saying these words why because that's the point of the gospel that's the point of the sermon on the mount all right is who is jesus the person of jesus christ more than the precepts that he teaches is the subject of the book of matthew and the subject of the sermon on the mount does that make sense all right because it's it's in knowing and coming into relationship with the person of Jesus Christ that you're able to actually live the principles and the precepts that he teaches. And apart from relationship, apart from knowing who he is and being in relationship with him, none of it makes any sense. And this is why Christianity is so radically different than just, just a regular religion of which there are, you know, countless. It's not just a set of rules by which you live by that makes you a better person. it's actually a relationship with a person that enables you to live a set of rules. (laughs) Because you live his nature, his character. The sermon is uh, meant, is intended to draw a distinction, a clear distinction between those of the world and followers of Christ, between adherents of the old order of Jewish legalism and those who would respond to Jesus' call to follow me. It, it draws a distinction between those content with rules and regulations as a means of ethics and life and those who will settle for nothing less than a perfect relationship with a perfect God. You see the difference there? That's the sermon. Jesus' message was meant to, to bring a sword and separate this, these two groups and then separate a person. Are, are you just looking for rules and regulations so that you can go to heaven, that you won't cut it? Right? Are you looking to live by some old order and just, and just make it through life? That's not it. All right? But if you want a, a perfect relationship with a perfect God, I'm your man. All right? that's, that's what the message came. Now, when I was going to Western Decades ago, when I was a student. It just keeps getting longer and longer. It's almost... I took a class called Christian Traditions. <clears throat> and uh, I thought, you know, I was a young Christian, I was on fire with God, and I thought, wow, there's actually a class that I can take, a general ed class. Wow, I can take this, and I can learn about his- the history of the Christian church. This will be great. <laughs> this guy... He was the most intelligent man I've ever met. He knew every language, every language. He just he'd say a word, and he said the Latin root of that, and the German root of that, and and the Greek root of that, and all. And every just pick a word out of the blue, and he knew every, he knew it in every language. I couldn't believe it. But I really quickly became aware that he was not a man of faith. He was a man of reason. All right, and he, he he. From the from the beginning, all the books he had us read, it was like every every miracle in the Bible are just they're just myths. Miracles are not possible, okay? The supernatural is not possible; it's ridiculous. Therefore, we must understand all supernatural as as myths, and they're they're stories that teach us lessons. And he's like trying to he's saying this is good, and I kept going, no, they're real, and and me and him and I argued literally we we just fought. i was like i'm not giving up i did give up (laughs) i was like i was spending all my time studying for this one class that didn't mean anything um just arguing with this guy it's halfway through the class i dropped it uh but i remember him clearly stating about the sermon on the mount that he was like you cannot accept it as something that jesus actually expected people to live by he said that's ridiculous And he referred to Matthew 5, 28, where Jesus said, I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery in his heart already. It's like, how can you expect? That's ridiculous. That's impossible. Therefore, it must not be understood as as literally something Jesus. Jesus was a good teacher, and he's trying to teach us how to live, but don't take it literally. And, And the reason he could not accept that someone could live by these precepts is because he, he dismissed the supernatural as being possible because he didn't know the person Jesus Christ. All right? He ruled out the possibility of the supernatural because he had no relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he couldn't understand what the Sermon on the Mount really meant. He understood every word the definition of every word, but he didn't get the main point. Because the main point was Jesus is the Messiah, the supernatural one. Everything about him was supernatural, and living in his kingdom is supernatural. And so the expectations that he teaches are attainable through him. All right? Does that make sense? It is possible because Jesus is who he claimed to be. He lived a supernatural life. He demands and requires supernatural power to live out the ethics of the kingdom. But we can live that. We can live in the supernatural. And here I'm talking about not just healing the sick, but looking without lust. Okay, Not having hatred. Not speaking lies. All of the things that we'll look at in the Sermon on the Mount requires a lifestyle, a sonship with him, with God, so that you can operate in a way that is perfect, that represents the character and nature of our Father. And that professor couldn't accept that because he didn't believe. He didn't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. Um, And so the question that we're brought to, and I hope, that the question that you're brought to uh, after reading this, after hearing my, my little talk here today, but as we, as we delve into the sermon, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? All right? Have you accepted Jesus as Lord? Are you ready to receive his teaching, not mere, merely as ethical ideas, but as the demands of discipleship? This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to live in the culture of his kingdom, to to operate in a conduct expected of those who respond to his call, follow me. Are you a son? Are you a daughter of uh, living like a disciple? That's what this sermon is all about. That's what we're going to delve into over the summer. God bless you. Aaron has some announcements. Yeah, yeah, amen. We're all ready to live perfectly this week, yes? Amen. I think that that sermon really set the table for what's going to be some really radical and, and hard